Are you searching for ways to increase your mental focus in life or in the mountains? Look no further than Behind the Sun Therapeutics. Owned and operated by prolific alpinist Samuel Johnson, Behind the Sun Therapeutics is a private mental health and mental coaching practice based in Seward, Alaska. Samuel, who is featured in the Fernline episode, Mindful Mountaineer, has made numerous first ascents spanning from Alaska to Asia and many places in between. Samuel is excited to offer performance-oriented mental coaching for risk-oriented sports to clients based around the world, as well as mental health services for clients within the state of Alaska. For more information, contact Behind the Sun Therapeutics via phone at 907-422-7504 or by email at behindthesuntherapeutics at gmail.com. Hey, Evan, did you hear that? Dude, it's a hoarding marmot. Looking for that last-minute piece of kit before heading into the hills? Make sure and stop by the hoarding marmot, Anchorage's finest outdoor consignment shop located in the heart of Spinard. The hoarding marmot has everything you need from high-end mountaineering gear, cross-country and downhill ski equipment, as well as a fine selection of local guidebooks, maps, and yummy trail snacks. Stop by the Hoarding Marmot next time you roll through town or check them out online at hoardingmarmot.com. All right, let's get to the show. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and you're listening to The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. On season two, I'm chatting with alpinists and other outdoor enthusiasts who are pushing the limits of creativity in the mountains and in their daily lives. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with an extraordinary group of people, the folks who choose to live full value lifestyles in some of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. All right. Well, it's great to be back with you for another episode of The Fern Line. Really stoked about today's episode. It's heavy on alpinism. Uh, We talk about some Alaskan alpinism. We talk about some Himalayan alpinism. And we talk about the importance of partnerships, friendship, and all that great stuff that is at the core of The Fern Line. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to take a moment to thank everyone who continues to support The Fern Line on Patreon. Patreon's a direct way to support this show or other creative endeavors that you enjoy. Basically, the way it works is you choose a dollar amount to kick in each month. It can be a dollar, it can be $10, it can be $25. And in exchange, you get bonus material like extra podcasts, you get music I write and produce, you get stickers and merchandise. But more than anything, when you are supporting The Fern Line on Patreon, you're helping to ensure that this podcast remains a sustainable endeavor for me moving forward. And every little bit makes a huge difference for me. To find out how to get involved, just head on over to thefernline.com and click on the Support the Fernline tab, and you can find out about Patreon. 
If you're saving all your cash for your next climbing trip, but you're looking for other ways to support the Fern Line, there's a few ways you can help out. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or within your favorite podcast app. You can tell someone directly. You know, word of mouth is the best way to get information out there, and it really helps promote the grassroots vibe that I'm going for. Tell your friends, your coworkers, your climbing partners, people you think might dig the fern line. Let them know it's out there. If you want to get in touch, you can email me directly at thefernline at gmail.com. I say this all the time, but I love getting emails from all of you. I love that extra connection that I'm getting with the folks who are listening to the show. And I love hearing about how the Fernline inspires you. I love hearing about the trips you're doing or basically any other shenanigans that you would like to tell me about. All right. So with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch, camp chair, or your cramped bivy nestled between your two partners in your 1990s single wall bibbler and settle in for this episode of the Fernline. On today's episode of The Fern Line, we'll get to know UK-based alpinist Malcolm Bass. Over the course of a 30-year alpine career, Malcolm has pushed the limits of exploration of the mind and the mountains. From his early caving expeditions in his university years, across unclimbed walls of rock and ice in the fabled Alaska Range, to a string of monumental ascents in the Garwal Himalaya, Malcolm epitomizes the character of a true alpinist. I recently got a chance to talk with Malcolm about his life in the mountains, the friendships he's forged along the way, as well as the other components of his life that he finds meaningful. We started our conversation by talking about his experiences with exploratory caving in his younger years and how that transitioned to a life in the mountains. off was we had a really good cross-fertilisation with Sheffield University Climbing Club, oddly, um, and the, the caving club used to have one 
meet a year to to go climbing, which was to go to Scotland to go to uh, a bunkhouse called the Kinty under under Ben Nevis um, to go Scottish winter climbing once a year. Um, very low level Scottish winter climbing, you know, sort of Scottish winter hill walking. And because we'd booked this good bunkhouse, um, which was really convenient, you could walk straight up onto Ben Nevis, uh, lots of other people around the periphery of the group wanted to come along, which included climbers from Sheffield University, uh, and one of whom is one of my, still one of my main climbing partners to this day, uh, Simon Yearsley. So Simon and his crew would come along. They hadn't got a caving background, but they were really excited by the exploratory caving that we were doing. So they kind of moved into exploratory caving. And at the same time, I and a few others were really excited by the, especially the winter climbing on, on Ben Nevis. And Simon and, and his friends would, would sort of take us under their wing for that aspect of it. So we had this kind of cross-fertilisation for a few years where uh, the climbers were caving and the, the, the cavers were, were, were going climbing. Going out onto Ben Nevis in the winter um, just made an enormous impression on me, just the, the, the beauty of the landscape in winter, how incredibly wild it felt on the, on the north face of ben, ben Nevis in winter. And also... And I could just see that there was this really, really exciting world of really difficult stuff that I wanted to involved with. So I did. I just started gradually doing more and more, more and more climbing. Um, for a while, I tried to, and my my caving at that point had, had largely moved into cave diving. And for a while, I tried to do both, keeping up the the, the, the cave diving and trying to improve my climbing a lot but partly it just you know I wasn't very well paid at the time it just became too expensive to try and get climbing kit get to Scotland and places to go climbing and try and maintain the the, the cave diving and, and cave diving is a really techie sport and expensive mm. and especially if you're trying to push it uh, you need to start spending more and more on kit and I'm also, I was also really conscious I'm not a very techie person, as you could probably see when we were setting up this, <laughs> the, the kit on this interview. And yeah. I, I kind of thought that I was going to get myself in trouble because of my technical incompetence. You know, I was going to do something, I wasn't going to service my valves properly, my lighting, I'd do something wrong with my lighting rig. I kind of thought I needed to get out of techie stuff into stuff that was more more physical. Once we got into the Scottish winter climbing, there was like a, a real carryover um, from the exploratory side of caving into wanting to try and do new winter routes in Scotland. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your headspace and um, kind of your maybe propensity for doing things that are committing. When you first started climbing, did you find that you had any sort of special skills or things that you were good at in climbing? Or did you find that you were maybe comfortable climbing above gear uh, and getting into those like committing aspects of it? I guess I just want to talk about that a little bit. I'm not a particularly bold climber above gear. One thing I do notice is that the I'm lucky in that the, the, the degree of exposure of the total environment doesn't seem to make much difference to me. So I can climb my same kind of grade, whether it's on a, a local cliff 10 minutes from the car or whether it's 10 days walk from the road had. The, 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 right. o the overall massiveness of the environment, I, right. I seem to be lucky and that that doesn't weigh too, weigh too heavily on me. That's a good um, skill for an alpinist. 
That's a, yeah, good, that's uh, a good trait for an alpinist. Yeah, my, my, my overall, you know, I'm not a great technical climber by, by any means, but my technical climbing level doesn't seem to be repressed too much by altitude or, right. or remoteness. So it en- ends up being relatively useful in, in those kind of situations. But I suppose the other headspace thing was um, coming through from the, from the caving environment, we noticed that a lot of climbers seem to be waiting for some sort of permission to climb new routes as if you had to acquire certain either technical standard or standing in the community or, or something before you were up to to climbing new routes and that was like just a completely different mindset to the one that we were bringing through from caving where finding new stuff was the norm um, so as soon as we started getting involved in the climbing it was natural to us to look at a, a guidebook map of, of, of a guidebook diagram of some scottish cliff and think well there's there's nothing you know there's nothing there there's a there's, a, there's a, a line here and a line there but that large section of cliff in the middle there's no lines on it i wonder if it's possible to put a route up there and i think because of the different background we didn't feel inhibited by the fact that we weren't very technical very good technical climbers didn't feel we had to wait to, to, to serve some kind of apprenticeship before we could um start doing new routes. Yeah. It seems like the exploratory side to alpinism really was rooted in your in just who you are as a person as a child and then getting into the caving uh and it seems like that's been a something that's kind of gone through your whole climbing career is is this real uh desire for exploration of the new. I can't help myself. Look at look at a photo of a cliff or a a mountain and immediately want to research what's been done on there so far and if, yeah. if there's a gap i feel excited by that right. uh, by work I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist and so we're encouraged to spend time thinking about personality you know our own and and personality of our patients so i've done a lot of formal personality testing of myself i score high on this personality dimension which is called openness to experience which kind of covers curiosity, uh, exploration, venturesomeness, th- those kind of things. And that's definitely there as an aspect of my personality. And that's, that's really lucky. That's really fortunate for, for doing you know, things like alpine climbing. Right. Let's switch gears a little bit and maybe think back to, to one experience in particular that really affected you as far as uh, moving into alpinism. It would be a trip to the, the European Alps. I, I can't remember when we took it, but we went to the Bernina Alps in, in Switzerland. They're not super technical routes, but the whole, the, the whole experience of going over there, taking the Telefreak up to the glacier, bivvying on the glacier. I remember thinking these routes just looked so immense. They just looked like they would take days and days and days to climb. And, and that was the, the, the kind of exciting thing about it was just how how enormous they looked and just the whole thing of getting up super early and and, and setting off and just gradually pitch by pitch re- reeling in the in the summit it was just such an exciting dramatic experience and then so we did a couple of routes there uh, and then we decided to go to the Mont Blanc range and we went and did the uh, Brenva Spur on Mont Blanc, not not a very hard technical route, but a but a really long route. I, I remember the feeling of just the the excitement about being able to move across such a 
a huge bit of terrain as the Brenva face of, of Mont Blanc. And I remember the ups and downs of the day of, you know, when you're faced with a long snow slope ahead of you and you just think this is just going to take forever. And, you, and then you have those upsurges of emotion when you're at the, at the top of that bit. And, you know, once again, it, it seems possible that you're actually going to get to the top of the thing. I remember getting to the top of Mont Blanc and just feeling absolutely superb. It's a real sense of joy at having done this brilliant looking route and, and covered all that terrain. Yeah. <laughs> I've struggled a lot more in the Mont Blanc range since then. Yeah. <laughs> it's, been, it's been about the most uh, least, I've had the least success in the European Alps I've had in any Alpine range. Every, every time I go there it seems to snow about two metres. ensuing years, Malcolm continued refining his skill set in the mountains, training in Scotland and the Alps, as well as making his first trips to the Himalaya. But it was a trip to Alaska in 2001, a massively committing 10-day first ascent on the east buttress of Mount Hunter with his partner Paul Figg that would set a new personal standard of what was possible. I asked Malcolm to talk about that life-changing experience on Hunter and what it meant to push through the physical and psychological barriers required for such an endeavor. with Jack Tackle in advance about it because no, he'd been the only person I think at that stage who'd landed in that cirque under the east face of um, Hunter uh, when he'd climbed uh, Diamond Direct with, um, with uh, Danini. So we established that we weren't going to have any kind of camp under there that just wasn't safe, that the, the cirque is too narrow and it's, the Serac fall from the sides of it would, would sweep the whole cirque. So Tackle had told us to arrive fit acclimatized and packed and get out of the plane and just start climbing that sounds so like th jack <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but it also told us and this, this this comes back into the story later to research the descent thoroughly so we'd done three out of the four things that he suggested we did we did arrive relatively fit we weren't acclimatized but um we got to anchorage and we were struck by landing in Anchorage, you know, from the UK, we immediately thought, this is all a lot more different than we thought it was going to be. Anchorage looked completely different. The whole environment seemed completely different. We really felt we were in a very foreign place. Uh, <laughs> so we start to thought, gulp, this is all... 
how different are the mountains going to be to what what we're used to and we were sharing a shuttle from um, Anchorage to Talkeetna with Doug Chabot and Bruce Miller and that was really good because there, there were four of us in the shuttle so we had in however long it takes to, to get to Caltina. We had we had some people to ask questions of. And I think they must have just thought these two are going these two are completely in above their heads. We were asking like very basic questions like, do we take a shovel? Do we take snowshoes? Um and they were very polite answering our questions. Um <laughs> They did say afterwards, we were, they were absolutely amazed that we did it, given the state of ignorance that we displayed on the, uh, as we were, <laughs> as we were, as we were shutting over, shutting over to, to Talkeetna. So we go to Talkeetna, we go over to the airport to meet Paul Roderick. So we'd been, been advised that, that Paul was the person to get if he wanted to land in somewhere unusual. So we went over and, uh, met Paul and he said yeah let's just uh, and it all happened so fast it all, it was, we, we like, arrived in Talkeet and went to the airstrips and introduced ourselves Paul said yeah let, let's go over there this afternoon and, and have a look shall we yeah it's like luckily this wasn't going in for the climb he said oh, we'll go in there and see if we can land so we're just virtually in our street clothes and that flight in was just amazing because um I'd, I'd never flown in one of those little planes like that and how close to the mountains we were yeah. flying that there, there was somebody else doing a a variation of the southeast spur of um hunter so we flew so close to them that we could see this guy was reaching up to put a wire in uh, wow <laughs> it was just incredible and then we landed down in this this tight little cirque um and <laughs> Paul, Paul then was then convinced that he could get in and out okay. Um, wow. Paul Roderick. I don't think we got out of the plane. He, he turned around so we could see the, we could see the buttress that we'd planned to climb. So we could see that the buttress looked climbable. And then he took off, uh, and he said, "Right, we'll go in properly tomorrow morning." Then he said, mm, "Maybe I just should have dropped you anyway. I'm not sure I should let you guys sleep on this." <laughs> yeah. No but, kidding. But, well, we didn't really. We went. We stayed at the the roadhouse, and we didn't sleep an awful lot. <laughs> bloody hell! Tomorrow, tomorrow. I've been in Alaska like twenty four hours, and tomorrow we're setting off on this climb. And we had no idea really how long it was going to take. We packed. I think we packed seven days' food. And just while we were getting ready to fly in, I just shoved another couple of gas canisters in, one in my sack and one in Paul's sack. Just think, yeah, just let's put another gas canister in just in case. And I think you know. Probably the fact that it all happened so fast, we were so carried away by the momentum of it that uh, we didn't really have a chance to reflect. And, and there suddenly we were there underneath, we were there back in the cirque. Paul Roderick said, don't make me come back for you. I, I don't want to come back here. Uh, don't make me come back for you, climb over the top, which which was our plan anyway. And then, you know, the, the plane was flying off uh, and there we were with our packs on our back, our harnesses on at the bottom of the buttress. In, in a way, I, I kind of think that that actually helped us because there wasn't much choice then other than to climb up and over the mountain. And we just uh, we, we set off up the thing. You know, I, I can't really remember now how I felt emotionally. Um, first day went smoothly, sort of moderate climbing, got a good BV sight under a overhanging rock, so it was nice and nice and nice and safe feeling. And then the second day that started off pretty moderate, getting making good progress up the buttress. And then we got to this 
horrendous pitch of very deep, very unconsolidated snow that was just completely unprotectable, not super steep, but the kind of stuff which seems to be characteristically Alaska that you have to kind of virtually tunnel up, build a trench up, really, is the only way to climb. It won't support your weight. And that felt horribly insecure. But then we got up under the the steep headwall of the of the buttress and that that then all started to feel a lot more a lot more familiar the climbing then felt pretty scottish it was like snowed up granite rock climbing and then thin strips of ice in corners and and, and couloirs up onto the the crest of the of this buttress and then we followed the crest along for a while to attempt to join the east ridge that then got really hard because it had this kind of double corniced um <laughs> very airy s snow that that seemed to have far too much air in the mix and not enough snow that really spooked us it felt completely unprotectable and it took us hours and hours and hours so we climbed through the whole so we did i think we did 24 hour stint of climbing uh, at that point before we could find somewhere to bivy and at the end of that 24-hour stint which was our, our second day I was certainly suffering from I was having mild hallucinations well not mild quite severe hallucinations just from sleep deprivation and stress I think the whole thing had just been happening so fast and the, the specific hallucination that I was getting was along the crest of the buttress we were climbing there was this particular steep rock buttress like spur type thing sticking out and i was seeing it turning into a claw like like the claw <laughs> of a bird of prey or something that would trap us or grab us and i could kind of if i concentrated and blinked and shook my head it would go away and it was from that that we we, we named the route the prey because we felt at that point we were like hunter was the hunter and we were the prey um, right. and that if we weren't careful, might eat us, consume us in, in some way. Yeah, on the end of the fourth day, we had our second night's sleep. We cho chopped this shitty ledge. And I remember we, we chopped it, put the tent up, got in, and then two minutes later, got back out again and started chopping some more because we chopped a, com a completely inadequate ledge. But we, had a, we did chop a decent ledge. We had a good night's sleep there. And the next morning was just this. It was on, on east-facing, so the light was just beautiful. And going away from that campsite was just a beautiful quite easy angled ice couloir going through beautiful white granite light light colored granite and it just looked absolutely superb we were re really excited to be there you know up a uh, on a new route in the fabled alaska range this beautiful bit of ice flowing down and really aesthetic and it was just at that point that we had one camera, Paul's camera, and it just stopped working. It just would not take a picture of that gorgeous ice cooler going, that piece of granite. So, so that annoyed us. Um, we made it up onto the East Ridge and th we were then able to relax a lot because we were on known ground. We knew that the top part of the East Ridge was relatively moderate and we climbed the East Ridge for the rest of the East Ridge for most of that day. And then we had one of those really great moments where we actually found a campsite that was completely flat we could take our harnesses off we didn't have to stay roped up overnight we could take our helmets off and we had a really good night that night really good night's sleep and then next day we summited and that's when we ignored 
that the last bit of Jack's advice, which was to really research the descent well, we hadn't researched the descent well, but we had photocopied the relevant pages of High Alaska, the pictures of the West Ridge, photographs of the West Ridge. But as I took them out of my rucksack to look and see which was the way down and they just fluttered away in the wind oh so that, that was our west our west ridge research gone first half day going on the west ridge was fine good campsite at the start of it but then on the, the next days and the subsequent days it just it didn't snow that hard but it just clouded up and big drop-offs on either side lots of cornicing um, and so when the light was bad and the cloud was thick, we just couldn't move. So we'd often get up in the morning, it was clear in the morning often, we'd, we'd move for about an hour or so, and then the cloud would come in, we'd put the tent up, get in the tent and keep peering out, and then the whole day would be gone, it, you know, it just wouldn't have cleared. Yeah. Um, so we're often moving only like two or three hours a day, sometimes less. But what was a really powerful experience for both of us and sort of affected our later climbing, I think, was we started to feel less stressed just by being out there. You know, we didn't feel any huge rush to, to need to get back down. It wasn't that cold, we had decent sleeping bags. We, we were short of food, but we didn't feel hungry. And we felt just quite comfortable in the environment, even though we'd been out for a, for a long time. Um, and I think that was quite a, a sort of important bit of learning, really, that you can be comfortable right. even though you've been out for a long time. If, if I'd imagined what it was like to be out for eight days, I would have thought it's going to be horrific to be out for eight days. How how wasted are you going to feel <laughs> at eight days? Um, but actually, eight days in, we felt okay. Um, wow. We eventually got to the glacier on day ten, and it was that when we got to the glacier, the exhaustion just hit us. Because um, I think there was no, you know, all the adrenaline just goes, doesn't it, when you're down on the flat glacier? And we had this walk to do from the foot of the West Ridge. Ugh. I'm sure it's not very far round to Cahiltner Base. <laughs> it just took hours. It's, it, like, it's far if you don't have snowshoes or skis. We, we didn't have either of those. Right. Um, <laughs> so we'd, we'd walk for about, I don't know, 100 metres and then sit down for 10 minutes and walk for another 100 metres. And we could see when you turn, if I remember rightly, you're on one glacier, then you turn off a side glacier to get to Cahiltner Base. I can remember we could see the tents and it, we thought, oh, we'll be there in five minutes. Um, but it would be like about three hours we have, later we eventually arrived there. How did it feel to get to base camp after that experience? Just, it, it felt absolutely superb. Um, a, it was nice to see other people. That was just huge. And I think it was um, Lisa who was the base camp manager at the time. Um, right. I'd, I'd completely lost my voice uh, on the climb, mostly by shouting rope calls for 10 days. So she was really kind and gave us, uh, gave me echinacea tea to, to, to get my voice back going. Going back, um, we'd had a, we'd, we'd got um, Paul to drop a, a, a bag of stuff with, our, with a big comfortable tent in and, and you know, some, some extra warm clothes, plus loads of bagels and smoked salmon. So we, we just had a, yeah, a hugely gluttonous time. <laughs> um,
For Malcolm, alpinism is a quest, a longing for rich experiences with friends, a way to look inside and find a deeper understanding of the self, an exploration of the outer bounds of what's possible. Although Malcolm would return to Alaska, it was a remote mountain in the Garwal Himalaya, a 6,800-meter sentinel in the sky named Janakot that would call him back again and again. Over the course of 15 years, in multiple unsuccessful attempts, Malcolm, with his partner from Hunter, Paul Figg, and Guy Buckingham, finally succeeded in climbing the southwest buttress and South Ridge in 2018. set off on these things is as you know is always it's always a really big moment um uh, and we had a uh a photographer and filmmakers with us on this trip hamish frost who's who's um but he wasn't actually coming with us on the climb so he was camping with us at the at the at the, at the foot of the mountain and so we got up at half midnight and there's about half hour walk from where we'd camped to up the glacier to to the foot of the climb um and we shuffled off into the darkness uh really quiet um we all felt quite tired from the approach so it, the mood was low as we shuffled off into the darkness really and then it was kind of exacerbated by having to say goodbye to hamish so he he came to the bergshunt and then he, he turned around to go back to his tent so and then the f the first day of climbing up the buttress um is kind of uh, moderate climbing, soloing, consequential but not particularly difficult. We ploughed our way up there through the darkness. Um, the, the face narrows down to a kind of choke point at about half height where there's a big snow field above with a fall line dropping down this little gully. So even though it, it's west facing the buttress, so even though it was 11 o'clock in the morning, we bivvied under that. We'd made about 800 metres of progress. We stopped early and safely under this big overhang. Bivvies weren't great on this climb because there were three of us in <laughs> allegedly allegedly a three-man tent. We had one of these uh, s uh, snow hammocks, that um, the one that Mark Ritchie originally designed. The British alpinist Paul Ramsden's done some work on it, so he, he sort of moved that design on a bit. And we had one of those at base camp. We thought, oh, no, we, we won't take it. And it just would have been perfect because each night we were chopping ledges that were good enough. Would have been great for a two-person bivvy, but not for three of us. And climbing as a three has got like all kinds of advantages, really. Getting things done, resting, having some rest between pitches. But it's hopeless. <laughs> it's hopeless for sleeping. Um, and the other two were much bigger than me, so uh, I, I, I was always sleeping in the middle. So the nights were not good. I started the second day by dropping a bag of personal stuff from the bivouac. So I dropped my little bag of personal stuff that had my first aid medication, had my earplugs, had my spare gloves, MP3 player, my glasses and my sunglasses. So I had to climb the rest of the route wearing snow goggles the whole oh, time because wow. I had nothing else to uh, to shade my eyes. Yeah, but on the second day, we were sort of following the line that Simon and I had done in 2014 but the second day we got nowhere near as high as Simon and I had had the previous year and we're still so we're still on the southwest buttress we haven't made it up onto the to the long south ridge 
third day up onto the south ridge um, and then the climbing completely changes character it then becomes a really ridgy climb um, right beautiful knife edge ridge uh, you can see down the east side of the mountain um, the end of day three long horizontal knife edge horizontal section of ridge and the clouds were just building up big thunderheads building up and so we had and you could you know that that feeling when you just know the air is charged oh, yeah. uh, and you think that um an electrical storm might be coming we could see this 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 storm thunder and lightning in the distance and we had a real dither then as to whether we thought we, oh, we might be able to cut into this horizontal ridge but we didn't really like it because we felt we'd you would felt would be the highest thing around if you you know we wouldn't be able to dig the cut the tent in deep enough the tent would still project above the top of the ridge <laughs> so we had <laughs> we had this dither as to whether to try and climb this 400 we could see in the distance this uh, rocky buttress 400 meters away along this section of yeah. um, ridge and it's like are we going to dash for that are we going to we, we didn't make effective and crisp decisions yeah. um, so i set off along the ridge for a little bit came back we dug we dug into the ridge for a little bit we then decided to go along the ridge so uh lots of toing and froing yeah well as i you know as i'm listening to you describe this climb it's you know, I have a perspective because I, you know, cut my teeth doing alpinism in the big mountains of Alaska. Mm. But but the scale of this climb sounds very big and pretty committing. You're a long way out at that point, certainly. I think the total length of the climb is probably about 3,000 metres, about, about 1,700 metres of vertical. But um, at no point did it feel really out there on this climb and I think that's something to do with the team I think we worked incredibly well as a team on this climb also as a three I think it's easier to accommodate everybody has ups and downs don't they on, on a big climb like that yeah. um, and I think as a three it's easier to accommodate that because it's normally it's easy if there's two of you if one of you goes down the other person has to be a really stalwart character to carry it through Right. But if one person goes, uh, mood or morale or psych drops in a party of three, there's two two people to to, to carry it through. Right. Um, so, I you know I've, I've climbed a lot with Paul. I've climbed a lot with Guy. I was hugely, personally, I was hugely comfortable with both of them and their ability. Right. Um, and knowing that even if I wasn't at my best for some reason both of them would have an awful lot of capacity to to keep it going right um paul's got immense endurance um and i've done a lot of you know hunter and a, a, another long 10-day climb we did in in the himalaya together i know he can just keep going for ages right um guy's got an immense cardiovascular motor and also he the, the amount of alpine mileage he has done he's um a mountaineering instructor he's just climbed so many alpine peaks that that vast experience is is really really shows and is really yeah. um really reassuring to climb around right and as a team of three I, I felt very comfortable yeah so we eventually we decide to dash along this ridge in the presence of the uh thunderheads and we get to this rock buttress and we look down from this rock buttress and 40 meters below it is this huge scoop um in the in the face below so we just abseil into it and it was just 
paradise. You know, it's one of those big scoops. There's no way you could fall out. It was about as big as two tennis pitches. Its sides went up about 30 metres. <laughs> um, so we could just gleefully, again, you know, fling our helmets off, take our harnesses off. We weren't going to have to sleep roped up. We could strew gear around. You could actually have some privacy going to the toilet when you needed it. <laughs> All of those all of those kind of good things <laughs> and <laughs> that was that was at 6500 meters so we had 300 meters to go that was a, a really good a really good place we had a really comfortable night there um, yeah. and then we set the alarm for five the next morning thinking you know 300 meters not going to take us forever um, and woke up at three o'clock woke up at five o'clock and it was snowing and uh, unbelievably it was also intermittently raining um <laughs> at, at incredible 6500 meters wow. uh, wet snow rain thick clag so we put the alarm back to for seven o'clock till seven o'clock and then seven o'clock it was pretty much doing the same thing and so we had this conversation do we wait for 24 hours now to see if it it clears up and None of us wanted to do that because it would just be so boring and uncomfortable crammed in the tent for three of us for right. 24 hours. I thought, let's not do that. Um, and somebody said, ah, it's just like Scotland, let's just go anyway. So that inspired us. It's just like Scotland, we'll just go anyway. So we just set off into the into into the murk. Um, and luckily it did get a bit colder then, so the, the snow was falling as proper snow. One of the things that was worrying us about setting off was if it was going to, like... You know, we didn't have full full waterproofs. We had down kit, you know, the kind of kit you wear above the freezing line. So we didn't want to get wet, which is an unusual problem at 6,500 metres, worrying about getting wet. Yeah. Um, but we, we it, it got colder, so it snowed our snow, and we eventually fumbled our way underneath the castle. We, we were fumbling because the, um, the, the visibility was really poor. So the gully that we needed to... I'd mentioned before to try and bypass the castle that was hard to find and it was like more guesswork than anything that enabled us to to actually find it and then once we are in that we were really optimistic because that gained height quickly it was nice climbing it had rock walls we could protect it um, and then we were up onto the we broke through the, the final rocks onto the the last bit of the summit ridge and we could see that that rose not gaining a lot of height for about sort of 400 meters of, of horizontal up to the the summit and guy led off along that moving together and we got to a point uh, a rock buttress where we've been over a couple of full summits but the next one just had that look like it was going to be the be the proper summit and it was still all murky really claggy that, that photograph you mentioned of paul and i embracing just below the summit it's, it's still cloudy then but we got to this rock buttress that looked like it'd be about a pitch from the summit and because it was my third attempt uh, guy and paul were kind enough to suggest that i led the last pitch up onto the summit we weren't absolutely sure it was the summit and so i set off up there it was a, it was a bit steeper than some of the other grounds so i put a bit of ice a couple of ice screws in just before the summit and then you don't know till just the last moment on these kind of roller coaster ridges whether it really is going to be the summit so right. it's not until your head actually gets level with the top that you can see ah thank goodness it actually is there's nothing there's nothing beyond it just drops so i got there elated raised my hands in uh, the victory salute they could see down below that i'd 
sort of put my hands up, a bit of uh, cheering, and then I brought them up. I just I had such incredible feelings of sort of warmth and gratitude to them for coming on this climb, for us all climbing together, for all we'd done for one another. Um, I have this tendency to to not give people a hug, not to do the celebrations till we're back down, because right. you know the whole thing of you're only halfway when you're on the summit but this occasion just sort of the the emotion overcame us all really and we all hugged and told each other how grateful we were what a fantastic experience it had been and then we were so fortunate that just as we started to descend the high cloud all cleared so all we could see was the peaks of all the bigger mountains all around in the Indian Himalaya or that area of the Indian Himalaya, and all the glaciers were completely filled in with cloud. So us and a few other peaks were, were above the cloud, and that was just absolutely beautiful. And Guy got a brilliant, a brilliant photograph of that, of us descending. Amazing. Um, ab- above the clouds. Sometimes uh, it all yeah. just comes together. Sometimes it all just comes together. Um, but it, it, was, it was a lot of years of that coming together three attempts i don't know how many weeks i've spent at, 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 at that base camp you know just incredibly grateful that it eventually happened grateful to paul and guy on on that climb really grateful to simon for the what we learned in in 2014 and also to like I mean, everything was smooth on this trip everything worked not just the three of us who climbed it there was the nepalese porter crew who brought us up to base camp we just the, 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 the smoothest, fastest, most efficient, amiable, good-humoured porter crew that we've ever had. They were incredibly, incredibly efficient. And it, there's so many variables and so many of them can go wrong and you need them all, so many of them to fall right. And we were so lucky so many of them fell right. In talking with Malcolm, I was reminded of the reasons we climb. The simple joy of moving over terrain and connecting with the natural world. That feeling of discovery when you turn the corner and see the most striking and beautiful mountain. Stripping away meaningless things to focus on the task at hand and the forging of relationships and bonds that can never be broken. Before we ended our conversation, I asked Malcolm to reflect on the most important relationships in his life, as well as some of the things that he would still like to do in his personal life and in the mountains.
climbing trips to me, whether they're like climbing trips to Scotland or, or climbing trips to, the, to India or Alaska, I love the whole experience from getting on the plane and watching the films on the plane to the to the bus journey to the walk and I really enjoy doing these things with people who enjoy the whole experience as well so I guess all of us climb with one another because we enjoy each other's company not just on the climb but over the whole thing so me and Simon and Paul, for instance, will all share an interest in the, the birds that we see in India, all trying to identify the birds that we, we see around base camp. So we've, we've got lots of uh, shared interests. Guy Buckingham, who was on this trip, I've done a, a couple of trips with, we've got a, a shared interest on the psychology of, of climbing. But I want to go away on trips with people who are my friends rather than just people who are just team members for a climb. And I think the people who go away with me hopefully they go away because we're friends as well and on the longer trips especially I think you need or I certainly need the social support of a friendship rather than just a temporary partnership I think going away for six weeks away from you know like your sort of life partners and your friends at home I'm certainly not a not a sufficiently self-reliant person to do that outside the context of uh, a friendship. So I would right. always rather go climbing with people who I'd regard as my friends, even if they might not necessarily be the optimal person for, for that climb. Um, so I've never really looked for people to climb with just because they're really good climbers partly i've got a morbid fear of being stuck at base camp for two weeks of bad weather with somebody who's just a complete climbing nerd i mean what are you <laughs> going to talk about it would it would, would drive each other completely mad um so but you know and of course also you, you kind of co-create these projects these um thinking about simon yearsley for instance we've got projects that we want to climb in scotland this winter and we've wanted to climb those projects in Scotland for two decades. Uh, wow. um, so having that, um, that that kind of dream in mind is, is inspiring. And if we get it done, it will be they'll be a lot more meaningful because they've kind of existed in our our shared mind right. for ages. I really get a lot of buzz from sharing a, a sort of project or a plan with with somebody else. So climbing Janahut with Paul who been on it before in 2004 added nice yeah um that's that's great and then the uh i guess the last thing that i wanted to ask you about is what you have planned in the future maybe some things that you would still like to do uh in alpinism and maybe just in your life i'm i'm definitely super enthused for doing stuff in scotland this winter and it's going to make a nice change from the for the himalayan trips i have to do a lot of sort of legs type training and lots of hill running and, and that kind of thing um, and I feel my technical climbing's dropped off a little bit so I'm really psyched for doing some nice hard technical really pushing my grade one day climbs in in Scotland this this, this winter um, haven't really thought that much beyond that about where I want to go next in alpinism I've got a new role at work um, I really want to focus over the next few months in getting to grips with that and for the rest of this summer uh, and early uh, and autumn I want to spend a lot more time with my my wife my partner uh, Donna James because obviously the lead up to a trip and the actual 
happening of a trip, we, we end up spending a lot of time apart. Um, and I really miss her and want to spend a lot more time doing stuff with her. So my, my horizons aren't very long at the moment, <laughs> almost, almost deliberately. In talking to you, I feel like I'm talking to somebody that is seeking a good balance in their life. Yeah, I think that's 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 how yeah that's how I feel, and and I worry sometimes that um, alpinism and the focus on alpinism can unbalance it. Well, um, yeah, because it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's a, it's a really strong pull. It's a really compelling pull. Oh yeah, um, um, and I think yeah, I try and be sort of intentional about. Uh, balancing things. Alpinism's great. The trouble is it's it's kind of endless in terms of each time I go I think I could have done this better, I could have done that better and there's kind of like this illusion of perfectibility I think um, that you kind of think next time you'll get it just right. Uh, yeah. I've already made lists of you know where my things that were in my sack that I didn't need to carry what, what, what did we do that was excessive, how we could have stripped things down right. um, and it's the other thing I just want to do is just want to spend time in the kind of different parts of the natural world different environments um, really matter to me so the Him Himalaya is you know it's obviously kind of like Spartan and bare and stripped back and all of those kind of things whereas I'm, I'm here in northern England at the moment and um, everything's so verdant and the trees are all massively green and the, the verges are high with flowers and it just i just want to be in that environment for a while all right well thanks for hanging out with me today I hope you got as much out of Malcolm's stories as I did, and I hope you can apply some of his alpine wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. Don't forget to review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or within your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoy this podcast, if it adds value to your life, please consider becoming a monthly backer on Patreon. And finally, if you enjoy the music you hear, you can check out more of my tunes on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, and evanphillips.net. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line.